Enya there. Enya Core, that's what it's called. The 1990s revival absolutely no one saw coming. Velvet sofas, metallic candlesticks and tassels. They're all having a moment, apparently, according to The Guardian. And Vice, who has reported on a vibe shift in interiors towards a pared-back modern medieval aesthetic inspired by the audio and other stylings of the castle-dwelling Celtic icon that is Enya. Reclusive Irish New Age artist has done very well, has a net worth of around $140 million, has sold 75 million records worldwide, and was also behind the song May It Be from... Lord of the Rings, of course, and no doubt uh, you'd be listening to Enya every second day in your home. Out in Karaka there, is that right? Uh, no, I'm not in charge of music. I have been no. actually told that I'm a music oink, so I leave that to my husband okay. and all the playlists just do it. Right, I, these evokes, days. evokes memories of the early 90s, doesn't it, Enya Johnny? It's uh, of the time, but uh, having something of a comeback. Uh, albeit in interior design. I'm oh, sorry, Wallace, I was only half listening. Is that, is that what you said? You were only half <laughs> yeah. listening to it, I've been thinking. <laughs> I think it's I, always, I do always wonder if you're listening, to be honest. I, I, I jest. Um, I was actually fully uh, ensconced in your I've been thinking, along with all the other um, uh, listeners. In fact, I, I don't think I've had more feedback on and I've been thinking. We might um, use that as a jumping-off point for tomorrow. Start on, a movement. On how... You, you, you both put a stake in the ground, didn't you, today? Mm. You've just said, enough is enough. If you missed that, Cindy and Johnny said, enough is enough. We need to come together as one, and climate change needs to be BP, to use the pun, <laughs> beyond political. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, it is 25 to 5 of the panel. Thank you so much for your feedback. Michelle says, Kia ora, Wallace. I'm in Christchurch, listening intently to RNZ this afternoon. And it's bringing back memories from 12 years ago, almost to the day, when all we had for information was a transistor radio broadcasting RNZ. No power, water, mobile phones. It was a comfort then, and it will be to all those in the same situation up north today. So thank you to all those at RNZ for working tirelessly to keep us informed in some of our darkest moments. The sun will shine again. We got there eventually in Ototahi Christchurch. It'll be a marathon, and we'll be back better than before and some of you are actually making that comparison that almost to the day um, uh, a reminder of the earthquakes more than a decade ago Canterbury was dealing with these very things power supplies food security water accessibility do we not learn from history and what works you're on the panel with Johnny O'Donnell and Cindy Michener well a law could allow flood hit homeowners to seek safer ground if the government would fund it Selling your home to the government. But a couple of years ago, the government delayed this work due to budget cuts. The issue of tens of thousands of homes in Auckland alone in flood zones was raised yesterday on the panel with Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown. Our next guest says that we are only delaying the inevitable. With us is Raywan Pert, uh, the Environmental Defence Society's Policy Director. Kia ora, Raywan. Kia ora, Wallace. And you and your colleagues looked at this issue in a recent report. So you say, at the moment, it's all a bit ad hoc. Some can afford to move to safer ground. Others lose their house and just cannot. 
Yes, I think that the tragedy is that we have to wait for a disaster like we've just um, seen rolling out um, the last few days before we start thinking about um, how we actually make sure people are living in safe places. Uh, we need to get ahead of the game. Uh, we need to identify these communities and we need to move them to places where people can live in, in safe and secure and sustainable homes. Yeah. Uh, now, the Labour-led government has suggested writing a law, the Climate Adaptation Act, to oversee managed retreat, if needed, on a really large scale. But this had been or has been put on the back burner? Um, well, it's sort of following behind the, the other resource management reforms, the Natural and Built Environment Act um, and the Spatial Planning Act. I think if, um, the one thing I think we need to do immediately is stop putting new buildings and infrastructure in places that are at risk. Um, we're still currently building in floodplains, um, and we need to uh, immediately put in strong regulation to stop that happening. The problem's big enough as it is, um, trying to deal with people already you know, in um, areas that are at risk. Um, we need to stop making that situation worse. OK, before we go to our panellists, because this is something that actually uh, I, I was asked everywhere I went when the, that massive inundation happened and a lot of uh, uh, homes were flooded, can the government buy me out and will they? So would large-scale managed retreat mean that the government offers you compensation to buy you out? Well, well, well I think this is the thing that's really up for debate. Um, should the government buy you out? Should we buy everyone out? What about second homes? What about um, property investors? Um, how much would people get? I mean, these are all really tricky issues. Uh, I think the important thing is that the government develops policy so everyone is clear what the options are. Yeah, Cindy. Ray, when I couldn't agree more, it is the building consents that we now absolutely have to look at. Uh, I remember when we were buying our property, we looked at a lot of limb reports. I think that's the right term, isn't it? The, and the limb reports often said on some properties when we looked in, in Clevedon, prone to flooding. Um, and yet, you know, pe people buy them. Do it. Do we need to have more teeth in these limb reports where they casually say prone to flooding? Well, I, well, I think we need law that says that councils cannot grant consent in high-risk areas because councils really struggle, you know, on the ground to stop development. Um, it's still happening. We've had this push for intensification. Um, and I also think the point you raise is that if, if you're a purchaser, um, thinking of buying a property, that you should be given the full information about, you know, what the risk is. Some of these homes won't be saleable, you know, once people realise that they're in floodplains or in a high-risk areas, and that potentially traps people. You can't sell, you can't move, you can't insure. So we need to get ahead of this game so people don't sort of suffer. Yeah, and Johnny, let's not forget that. Uh, let's not forget about Nelson. Where was it? Uh, early last year, you were inundated uh, with a flood the likes of which you'd never seen in history. That might I just breached the banks and flooded a lot of the city, a lot of slips into Tahuna. So you you're yeah. as familiar with this issue, you know, as others. 
I, absolutely. And actually, the uh, a lot of the communities that were seriously affected by landslides and flooding in that August event uh, had been locked into uh, a conflict with the council for yeah. some time about whether to publish that risk in their limb reports. Right. Um, so this is this is really tricky, right? Um, because this is people's values um, uh, that are tied up in their houses. They're really tough conversations to have. They require quite a bit of political courage to get out in front of. Um, I, I think it's hard to say we're going to get in front of this because it already feels like we're quite behind. Um, part of James Shaw's legacy as climate change minister will, of course, be the Zero Carbon Act. But if he gets another run at this, then the Climate Adaptation Act has to be um, the next stage. It seems to be a piece of legislation that's always looming. Uh, and the part that makes me a bit grumpy is that our our climate response around this has been really constrained by Grant Robertson's policy of ensuring that our climate response here is fiscally neutral. And that's just nonsense because actually uh, delaying investment in this space at the expense of future generations and increasing the cost is not a fiscally neutral exercise anyway. It's actually costing us more. So we really need to take the shackles off that. Um, I find um, that a, a bit distressing thinking about the amount of public investment and debt we've gone into over COVID to get us through a pandemic that we haven't actually asked for greater outcomes in this space as part of that investment. Um, so I think it's going to be part of the election conversation. Hopefully the shackles come off. We need to invest the uh, cheapest time, <laughs> the least expensive time is actually before, but the second least expensive is right now, not in the future. Raywin? Yeah, I totally agree. It's far cheaper to act before, um, not after, but now we are after. It's it's really important that people don't rebuild um, in places where they're going to get flooded again and it will become untenable. We need to start looking at um, safe places to put people. But we also need to look strategically. So if we can sort of free up land for floodplains, for wetlands, um, you know, to actually provide nature, enable nature to provide the solutions to some of these things or at least help out, we should do that. So maybe buying up some far strategic farms, strategic properties where we can actually give rivers room to move. Mm. Um, okay. And also, yeah. Now, Raywin, um, here's, here's an option. So what's the solution? Because uh, you ask who pays. Uh, I'm going to say something now which is going to get the texters going uh, and the listeners thinking. How about this? Your report says do a capital gains tax to fund managed retreat. Am I right? Yes, that's, there's a lot of options of how we fund it. That's one. We could have levies on insurance. We could um, mm. make the polluter pay. So that's emitters. Um, uh, so there's yeah, there's a lot of options. I think on how you might raise the money. Who would support also, that? Who would support? I would uh, like to hear. Would you? You would? <laughs> okay, Cindy. Absolutely, and it's, Cindy. it's the most obvious place actually, Wallace, because it's it's putting the um, some of the burden back on the people with the uh, wealth accumulated from those properties. I guess so, yes. um, I think that's pretty important. Cindy, you're a homeowner. You came on here and put the flag on the ground, and you said enough is enough. We need to speak with one voice on climate change. Would you support a capital? gains tax to fund managed retreat? Yes, I would. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, we're one of the only countries in the world that doesn't have some form of capital gains tax. I actually Sorry. support equal taxation. Right. Hey, Rowan, kia ora. That'll get uh, listeners going. Thank you for that. That's <laughs> well, uh, Rowan Peart um, from the Environmental Defence Society. I want to ask you now the same question. We have two panellists who are on board with that. Pretty um, interesting uh, idea. Would you support a capital gains tax to fund managed retreat? 15 to 5, 
the panel. Um, thank you for your responses. Just uh, uh, an update here from half past four. Emergency Auckland Emergency Management says the West Coast settlements of Piha and Karikari remain cut off due to significant damage to roads. It's looking at making deliveries by air and potentially getting people out who want to leave. Civil Defence says mindful there may be other communities needing support and is working on this and people are advised to remain vigilant due to the chance of further slips. Stay listening to RNZ. Uh, as we understand, there may well be an announcement uh, around water um, after five uh, with uh, a checkpoint from Hawke's Bay Civil Defence. Uh, but needless to say, checkpoint will keep you up to date with everything. To another topic now. Nearly a quarter of young people in this country are suffering from anxiety, fatigue and depression. That's according to the Salvation Army's State of the Nation report. The proportion of those aged 15 to 24 experiencing these symptoms of mental distress jumped from 11% a couple of years ago to 23% just two years later. Māori and Pacifica in particular are experiencing higher rates than European or Asian peoples. With us is Paul Barber, who is the Senior Social Policy Analyst at the Salvation Army's Social Policy and Parliamentary Unit. Kia ora, Paul. Yeah, kia ora, Wallace. Thank you for having me on the show. And that number there is why you're on the show, because that jump is really quite significant. Young people are experiencing mental distress jumping. Can you explain that? That is the big question, exactly yeah. why, what is going on for young people. And I guess um, that figure that we use in the report is taken from the New Zealand Health Survey that's done annually that asks um, uh, thousands of people um, New Zealand questions about their health. And it's really um, been a noticeable um, theme of the, the COVID time. That in 2020, there was actually a small drop in that, that figure. And in the last two years, that's accelerated on. Uh, I wish I could give you an easy answer to that yeah. question. Uh, I, I have been uh, talking today to uh, Aaron Blenheim, actually, to um, people here about our report today. And again, there was quite some discussion about what is going on for young people. Uh, and I think one of the things to think about when we see this uh, uh, talking, uh, this expression of mental distress, it needs to be seen in the context of what other things are going on for young people in New Zealand. No. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things that is really striking about our our work this year in our report is looking at, uh, for instance, the education outcomes for young people <clears throat> that have been <clears throat> also affected by COVID and <clears throat> the stresses of trying to um, carry on their schooling severely disrupted by the, the COVID experiences. I think we're seeing also around the employment experiences of young people. Yeah. Despite us having record low unemployment, we have uh, unemployment rates for, for younger people that are much higher than for other age groups. And when you uh, and we and we have the group of young people who are not in education, employment, or training, the, the neat group, that's not declined as much as you might have expected. There's still okay. six thousand young people. Yeah. So right, now, Paul, I guess um, we're saying there's a few things going on for young people. Yeah, indeed. And let's let's bring in the panel, and then we, you can respond to both. Paul, Johnny, you first. 
Well, I think uh, there's no doubt. I mean, I'm not surprised at all by these statistics, and there's no doubt there's a lot of uh, external pressures on young people, cost of living, access to housing, the pandemic. But of course, it's no great mystery to think about the conversation we've been having over the last couple of hours, which is climate anxiety, um, the crisis we've found ourselves in, uh, and the inability to look into the future and think about a safe future um, as a young person will no doubt have a massive impact. The other thing, of course, is that through the pandemic and the stresses of that, inequality in this country has actually got worse um, through the pandemic. And there's really clear evidence, um, which Salvation Army has done a lot of work in as well, uh, credit to you, uh, between the link between inequality uh, and mental distress. But you don't actually need the evidence. You can just ask anyone in the health sector and they'll tell you about the link between poverty and poor health outcomes. Uh, it's pretty obvious and it's something that needs to be addressed. Stay there, Paul. Well, I think also in the report it mentions that there's been a 40% rise in the number of children under 15 being injured and a a similar Mm. rise in the 15 to 19 and the number of sexual assault victims. I mean, I think it's, it's madness to not think that the physical violence does not have a flow-on effect in terms of your your mental health and your anxiety. Yes, your um, external, you know, bigger macro-environmental factors are stressing everybody, but actually mm-hmm. the level of violence and the increase in the level in, of violence must be a major contributor. Final thought, Paul? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I thank you for that, uh, those responses because, yeah, I, I think that sense of stress and that sense of um, of inequality and, and um, that whole issue around climate anxiety is not something we were looked at in our report, but it, it is often talked about. Um, it is that sense of um, the social stress that uh, young people are under, and they probably they do feel that more acutely. Um, they're in the development stage in their lives, and um, they would feel these stresses and these anxieties more strongly. And it's up to us, I think, uh, the the call, the hope we have out of our report is that we take these statistics um, seriously and really look to um, believe in, support and embrace younger people. Um, They they are, after all, the potential and future of our country. uh... Paul, thank you for your time here. Thank you. Uh, That's Paul Barber there, uh, Senior Social Policy Analyst at Salvation Army. So that's the latest State of the Nation report. Uh, Quite a large, significant jump in young people uh, experiencing mental uh, distress. Now, just a transparent update for you. More power is available to reconnect cut-off households in Tarawhiti than the damaged lines can handle. Transpower says enough power is available for 30,000 homes, but so far, Eastland Network is taking enough for 24,000, indicating that lines are damaged. In Hawke's Bay, lines company Unison is taking enough power, uh, sorry, taking enough to power 38,000 homes, up substantially from this morning. Transpower says it aims to get more power to its Whakatū station in place of the damaged Redcliffe substation to supply Unison. And it says it's been assessing the damage to Redcliffe since getting back in this afternoon. So we'll have a lot more for you across into the evening uh, on RNZ National uh, with a checkpoint, Lisa Owen, lately with Karen Hay. Uh, and keep that feedback coming. How are you faring? Just how are you doing? Text me two one. Zero one. I'd really love to hear from you. And you can email me uh, on the panel at rnz.co.nz. I did ask for, because I want to do a small compilation of 
your local heroes. I want to read some out tomorrow and Friday, just those people who are just doing just that next bit. Email me, please. And Helen says, my local hero is a young woman, Rachel Devine, who volunteered and was made site supervisor not knowing what to expect, taking the first shift 10 p.m. to 8 a.m. through the first night of the cyclone and set up the new Civil Defence Centre in Merton Road, Auckland. Brave, organised, practical, a hero. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely great. Who is your local hero? However big, however small, uh, some information just to hand here. The police say four people have died as a result of Cyclone Gabrielle. The body of a child was found in Nestal near Napier this afternoon and a volunteer firefighter's body was recovered from a landslide in Murawai today. Another person died in a landslip in Puturino, Hawke's Bay yesterday afternoon and a body was found on the shore near Napier yesterday. The police say they are gravely concerned about several people missing in Hawke's Bay and Tarafati. And they've received 1,400 reports so far of people who can't be contacted across the North Island. The vast majority of those registered as uncontactable are in Hawke's Bay and Tairafati. You're on the panel on RNZ National. And look, finally, in just a little bit of other news today, 25 years at our place. Well, 25 years and one day old, midday... On February the 14th, 1998, yachtsman Sir Peter Blake led two children through the doors of a new institution called Te Papa. Well, 25 years on, it is a major part of New Zealand's cultural scene. So we thought we'd just acknowledge it uh, toward the end of our show this afternoon with Courtney Johnston, Te Papa's relatively new chief executive. Courtney, kia ora. Oh, kia ora, and thank you for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, 25 years, we can't just go past it, can we? And I can recall, I can recall at the time, it was a real shake-up in terms oh. of what a museum was supposed to be. I, clear as day, remember the reviews. They called it a theme park. Am I right? <laughs> well, I was actually at university um, effectively studying museums, and so I've read every scrap of criticism uh, that was written, some of it. Some of it was stinging, um, but I do think it was a signal of how the, the founders and those first people working on Te Papa just radically disrupted the idea of what a museum can be. And, and you know, I acknowledge they burnt some people off along the way. But Absolutely. Two, mil- two million visitors in that first year. They forecast 700,000. And just the space they made for a new generation of people to care about museums and connect with them, you've got to give them credit. Let's go around the panel on this, Cindy. <laughs> um, look, I think Te Papa is absolutely fantastic. I love the concept of making it more accessible, which was the fear behind the theme park, really. And I think that it is it is credit to Cheryl Southern, the Cheryl original, Southern. Yeah, yeah, you know, she really had a vision for connecting younger people to museums. And if you look around the world at how you know they're doing exhibitions now, we, you know, we we weren't behind. We were absolutely out there. And I say happy birthday and congratulations. Right, Johnny. Oh, 
<laughs> oh, absolutely. Kia ora, Courtney. And I just, just want to uh, absolutely echo that. Look, when we have international visitors who come through Wellington, every single time they are just amazed at Te Papa and the uh, facility that we have on offer for free. That's really unique to have something of, of that quality available to our visitors and indeed us as well. We never get bored of Te Papa. We absolutely yeah. love it. So uh, happy birthday as well. I also want to particularly acknowledge um, the work that Te Papa has always done in carving out uh, really balanced bicultural narratives um, as well. And I thought um, for me, I'll, uh, it was particularly um, awesome to see the inaugural Te Hautapo Matariki held um, last mm. year. That was quite a watershed, watershed moment for the whole country. But uh, what a special scene to witness on the rooftop there um, at yeah. Te Papa as we recognised yeah. our first Indigenous holiday. Just awesome. Yeah, kia ora, Johnny. Uh, can I just say a, a longer interview will, um, you know, sort of acknowledge the sort of the ups and downs and the long story it has i gotta call attention to the building itself do we still love it do we still love the building yes Court- Who's gonna go fair? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you can text me on that too as well 2101 do we do we still love te papa the building 25 years on i've got to say courtney i've really grown used to it now i used to hate it mm. now i'm thinking it's pretty special you know, I think um, it, it's a 25-year marker of itself, of hopes and dreams mm. and a whole bunch of postmodern architecture all wrapped up into one. And it is certainly nothing if not distinctive. Good on you, Courtney. Kia ora. Thanks for your time there. That's uh, the Papa's chief executive. Veronica says, my local hero is the person looking after my elderly disabled father, given I can't get hold of him in Gisborne. I hope there is someone, likely his neighbour, Here's hoping. Stay safe, stay well, and thanks for listening to you all. Checkpoint next, at least I will.